Amen. Hey everyone, I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. So nice to see you all here. We are going to talk about um, step three. So if you have your big books, we are on page 58, how it works. What a great title, right? How it works. Like it works. It really works, but it is work. And this will show us how it works exactly what to do. I mean, we all know about recipes, right? We've all baked those cakes when we shouldn't have. This is a recipe for recovery. And this book tells us how it works. So um, let's set the stage here. We're at step three. So we've already started becoming willing to go to any length. We've admitted we're powerless over food and our lives are unmanageable. And if you need a little help with that saying, like me, when I came around, they said, okay, admit you're powerless over food, now stick to a food plan. And it made no sense to me and I didn't understand what powerlessness is. If you go on our website, we have a little one page document, um, it's called the broken bridge that explains what powerlessness is and should be helpful to help you relate to it. I know Tricia will put the link in the chat. Um, then step two, we began our treasure hunt for God, right? Looking for clues about God because the book told us that our problem is lack of power, not lack of desire, not lack of knowledge, lack of power, right on page 45. And it says the main object of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. So we got our first clues about God. If this power is going to solve our problem, this power must be able to think. So it can't just be the wind. I mean, the wind is for sure a power greater than I am, but the wind can't think to solve my problem. This power must be smart. This power must be strong because this illness surely kicked my butt. So this power must be stronger than the illness. And if this power is going to solve my problem, this power must care about me. Dare I say this power, this God must love me. So we started our clues, you know, looking for clues about God. We went to page 55, where it tells us that deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So just like God planted two lungs, two kidneys, one heart, one stomach in us, somewhere in the midst of all those organs is the fundamental idea of himself. And this is the power we need to access in order to be free of the obsession. What's the nexus, right? What, do I just go and get a food plan and that's it? No, that doesn't work. My problem isn't lack of a good food plan. It's lack of power. And what do I need that power to do? Basically, our book tells us we need to have a spiritual experience. We need to have this power rewire our hearts um, through the working of the steps. So with that backdrop, um, let's pick up how it works, chapter five. Um, and they're saying, okay, now you're, you've admitted you're powerless, that your life is a mess. And um, you've come to believe that there's a God. You may be shaky about it, but okay. You've seen evidence of people. I'm looking at Annie now, if you don't mind. A couple months ago, she was here 
crying her eyes out because she couldn't stop binging. And now you look at her, she cannot stop smiling. Or, or Melissa, A, or just like all these people, just, it's just name after name. You can't be around these people and not believe that there's a God. It's like um, they were one way and now they were another. Or me, I was going around like faking that I got raped to get attention, you know, for I would take a razor blade and slash my lips open and, you know, that and go to a hospital for a fake exam just to get attention. I don't do that anymore. I won't even lie about anything. My teenagers will say, yeah, my mom may be a lot of things, but she's not a liar. This program changes us. So let's find out how it works. So the first thing it tells us that people don't fail who thoroughly follow our path, which means no shortcuts. And it's um, it, so it starts with saying, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. So a lot of times we say, hi, I'm the one named rarely. I do it all right, but it doesn't work. But they say, uh-uh-uh, we're gonna tell you those people for whom it doesn't work. And it says, those who don't completely do it, usually people who are incapable of being honest with themselves. They say constitutionally incapable. So that means I believe like medically unable, like the people who have, I don't know, severe mental illness and can't be honest or people who have um, maybe some kind of, um, illness that has just retarded their um, mental growth and they can't, they can't think, they can't reason. And they say, these people aren't at fault. They seem to have been born that way. Um, they're naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Well, boy, wouldn't I have loved that out? I'm incapable of being honest. But that wasn't true. I was just unwilling to be honest. So right from the start, I will say that if we are not willing to be honest, rigorously honest, then we may as well just close our book and, and walk away because God absolutely will not dwell with dishonesty. If I'm dishonest, it's like I'm taking a big black magic marker and writing the words, go away God across my heart. Um, why? Because think about it. Every time I'm dishonest, I'm dishonest to avoid a consequence I don't want or to get something I do want. Basically, I'm playing God. I'm trying to manage and control things and it doesn't work. So being rigorously honest means we're honest even if there's going to be consequences to pay. So it says, um, as long as we're honest, we can do it. And it says, even there are people who have grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. There are plenty of people on this line who have depression or you know other things like that and are able to recover. So just because if we have depression, it's not a bar to recovery, it's not. Dishonesty is. Okay, so they tell, so right now they say, okay, we have to search for God, admit powerlessness and be honest, right? So we know these are things we have to do now. 
and then they tell us why their stories in the book. Say, our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, train wrecks living on self-will, what happened, we found God, or we let God find us, and what we're like now, happy, joyous, and free. So whenever we tell our stories, if we're asked to share at meetings, this is what we want to focus on, what we used to be like, what happened, and we want to stress what happened? How did God get hold of us? And what we're like now? And then here, I think is the one sentence that every sponsor should use to qualify people for this program. And we can use it to qualify ourselves. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. So if you have decided so that means it's a question of making a decision, not what do I feel like doing? So if you've decided you want what we have, well, I, logical question is, what do you guys have? What do you have that someone might want? What do we have? And the answer is really in step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And a spiritual awakening is described on page 25, um, where God comes in and just rearranges our heart so that a completely new set of priorities and values takes over. Um, so that's what we get. And it's like it changes the soil of our souls. And as you know, we've talked about like roses and other plants can only grow in a certain soil. This illness lives in a soil of selfishness and self-centeredness. So we need to change the soil that, so that the illness just can't exist there anymore. So if you've decided you want what we have, now remember, most of us have jobs. We've decided to take our jobs. So even those days when we don't feel like getting up to go to work, we do it anyway, otherwise we would lose our job. So we've decided we're going to do whatever it takes to get well, whether we want to or not. It says willing to go to any lengths, then, and I say then and only then, are you ready to take certain steps? So if you're not sure you're willing to go to any lengths, I would say do this, write on a piece of paper what you're not willing to do. Be very specific. Like, I'm not willing to go to more than one meeting a week. I'm not willing to get up 20 minutes earlier to call my sponsor. Write what you're not willing to do and then get with a recovered person and go over your list and see if it's legit. I mean, if someone showed me their list and it says, I'm not willing to rob a bank, I would say that's fine because this program requires rigorous honesty. Bank robbery is not part of rigorous honesty. So you're, you're, you're cool. No bank robberies. But if someone says, I'm not willing to like be on a food plan and say, maybe you're not willing to go to any lengths. And then as a sponsor, we are under no obligation to work with that person. They can come to meetings. Um, but according to this text, not according to me, they're not sponsorable. So it says, at some of these, we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we couldn't. So what they're saying is, guys, this ultimately is the easier, softer way. This is the least painful way. And it says, we beg of you, 
be fearless and thorough. Let go of your old ideas. And it reminds us, it says, remember, we deal with alcohol or food, cunning, baffling, powerful. That's such a strange, strange terms to use for food. Food is a common noun, an inanimate object, but they say it's cunning. I actually looked up the definition, having skill in achieving a goal by cunning, um, like by being devious. Food, really? Food's just food. Baffling? I mean, a piece of cake, it might be many things, but you wouldn't say it's baffling. Powerful? So I think they're talking about that there's, um, that there's a, a negative kind of spiritual force behind this. Um, they say very clearly in the book, once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So it's like this force that drives us to the food. And it says, without help, it is too much for us. Well, that makes sense, right? Because a piece of cake you wouldn't think is stronger than me, but they're saying it is. There's, some, there's some, something there that makes it without help too much. And then the good stuff but there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. I mean, I can just picture them thinking about like us, the generations in the future and offering up a prayer. May they find him now. That's what they wanted for us to find God. So then they go ahead and tell us half measure to avail us nothing. And any of the teachers in the class in the group will say, know that if you get a half on a test, you get a 50%, you get an F. Um, and so it says, okay, you're at the turning point. You believe in God, maybe a little shaky, but you believe you're at the turning point. Which way are you going to go? And then they tell us the way they went. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. And this is how I picture it when I hear protection and care. I think of um, in the old days, like the, the kings who had all the land and serfs working the land. And if you were on your king's land, you know, you were protected. So if I were to go to the king and say, I need protection, I'm being, you know, there's forces stronger than me. I need, I need safety, I need protection. And the king would say, sure, stay on my land work here, thrive here, and you are protected. When the invading army comes, the walls are gonna go up, the drawbridge is gonna go up, and as long as you're on my land, you are protected. So that's more, two more clues we have about God. He offers us safety and he, and he wants to protect us, or clues about God. And it says, um, here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. Now, suggested doesn't mean optional. This is a whole suggested program of recovery, like a, like a protocol. If I went to my doctor and I had pneumonia and she said, you need a nebulizer, you need penicillin, and you need cough medicine. And I said, um, she said, that's a suggested program of recovery from pneumonia. And I said, I'm great with the nebulizer. I'm fine with the cough medicine, but I don't like taking pills. So yeah, I'm not doing the antibiotic part. I wouldn't get better. So if we're going to do this, we're going to do this all. And we start out 
admitting we're powerless and our life is unmanageable. And we believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And then this is where we are now, making a decision. Again, it's a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. So not over to the tyranny of God, but to his care. So they say, okay, many of us exclaimed on page 60, what an order, I can't go through with this, right? I can't go through all these steps because once we turn our will and our lives over to God, then we clean up our past. And then once we do that, we finish making our amends. We continue by cleaning up our day, praying and meditate so that we get closer to God and can discern his will a bit better and try to help other people and practice spiritual principles like honesty, unselfishness, tolerance in all our affairs. And they say, no one of us can maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. Um, you know, I mean, every, every day we will find that we, we violate one or two or 10, if you're me, of these principles. Um, and they say, it's okay, like we're not saints but we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. And then a line that can be misused. It says, we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. This does not mean we claim sticking to a food plan progress rather than sticking to a food plan perfection. So we can't say, well, I only binged twice this week and last week I binged five times. So that's progress. I mean, I'm, you people here who are in AA also, you know, no one could ever go into AA and say, yeah, I had four beers three days ago and yesterday I only had two beers. So I'm making progress. Good for me. They would say, sit down and be quiet. Um, so they say spiritual progress. So we should be able to look back at where we were a few months ago and say, am I doing better than I was a few months ago? Is my bounce back period less? Meaning when I get a resentment, instead of sitting in it for three days, am I only sitting in it for two days? And then eventually one day, and then hopefully, you know, less than 24 hours. So that's the goal, spiritual progress, always moving forward. And then my favorite part, it says, okay, now let's talk about um, three pertinent ideas. And so if we're at step three or we're working on, with someone on step three, this is a really good way to help people get to the point where they can trust God enough to give their will and their lives over to them. Um, Annie, can you, can you work with me here? Okay, Annie, do you believe that you're a compulsive eater and can't manage your own life? Okay, yes, yeah, so that's 100%. the A. B, do you believe that no human power can relieve your compulsive eating? Yes, because I've tried a lot of human power. Okay, and C, that God could and would if were sought. So this is where it gets tricky, um, that God could. So do you believe you look around at other people and can you believe that God could? 
When I look around at other people, do I believe that God could? That he could restore other people to sanity? Yes. Maybe yes. not you, but yes. other. Yes. Okay. All right. So from yeah. there, I'm going to mute you because of the background noise. So first, we can ask someone, do you believe that God could restore other people to sanity? And it's generally, yes, because, right, we've seen it in our friends. Do you believe that God could restore you personally to sanity if he wanted to? Now, he may not want to. He may have good reasons for not wanting to, a valid reason. But could he if he did want to? And I think we'd all have to say yes, right? He's God. If he could restore everyone else to sanity, he could for me if he wanted to. But now here's the question that he would if he were sought. So often when, when you ask people, do you believe he will restore you personally to sanity? Sometimes that's a, he could for other people, he could for me if he wanted to, but he won't for me. And then you say, okay, why? Why could he, but yet not? And there's generally five, one of five reasons that someone gives. So the first is I've done some really bad things, right? We all have. Um, and the answer to that is so did the founders of this program. And that's why they put in a ninth step. We get a chance to go back and fix those really bad things. You know, I made amends to the hospital where I went for a fake rape exam. We get a chance to make amends. Okay. But sometimes people say, well, it's not that I've done this really bad thing. I'm just bad. I'm just not worthy. There's this like vague or sometimes not so vague sense of like low self-esteem of unworthiness. And I think that's what it is for most of us. God could, but he won't. I'm not worthy. And I would say two things to that. Um, first, let's say. I'm going across the street and I'm looking at my cell phone and I'm not being careful and I get hit by a truck and it, and both my legs are broken and the ambulance comes to take me to the hospital. Would I say, no, 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 don't take me to the hospital. It's my fault. I caused this, you know, don't do it. I'm, you know, I'm not worthy. I caused this. We never would do that. We would say, get me to the hospital so the doctor can fix my legs. Yet suddenly when it comes to God, we don't see him that way. And we're all like kind of noble, like, no, no, I, I can only go to God when I'm worthy. And let's say we still think that, okay, an ambulance, you know, a doctor is different, but I can't go to God, the creator of the universe, if I'm not worthy then I challenge you to find one time in this book where it says that worthiness is a requirement. It doesn't. So we could spend $10,000 on therapy, right? Trying to have a therapist help us, you know, 10 ways to have good self-esteem or how to feel worthy. And say, no, like I would say to someone, you're not worthy, but neither was I and neither am I to this day. God never requires worthiness. He only requires willingness. So it doesn't matter that we're not worthy 
Just like it doesn't matter if I'm not worthy to get my legs put in a cast if I get hit by a car. It doesn't matter. Worthiness was never God's demand. It's something we put on ourselves that's false. So sometimes people may say, well, God won't because I've tried this so many friggin' times before. And then I would hold, hold up my cell phone again, the one that I would have been looking at while I got hit by the truck. Um, and I would say, okay, you know, let's say I try to take a picture a hundred times by pushing this button, which doesn't take pictures. It's the on off button, right? hundred times doesn't work. Then one day someone comes in and says, Janet, you're pushing the wrong button. You should push this button. It doesn't matter if a hundred times or 10,000 times I haven't taken, been able to take pictures. Suddenly I can take pictures if I'm shown the right button and I'm willing to push it. And the last reason people give is, well, God would if he were sought, but I'm not really seeking him. And if that were the case, I would ask the person to write down what do you think is required to seek God? And which of those things on the list are you not willing to do? And if they say, for instance, well, I believe a person needs to pray and I'm not willing to, to pray at all. I would say then, yeah, you may have a problem, but then, right, it goes back to the requirements to work the steps, being willing to go to any length. So generally, if we're doing what our sponsors tell us, and a, most sponsors will tell people you need to spend some, some time with God every day in prayer, meditation, spiritual reading, if we're doing what we're told, I think for most of us, it's generally a feeling of unworthiness. But that's not the admission price at all. Only willingnesses. So it says, and being convinced. So we can't move on until we believe that God will restore us to sanity in spite of our unworthiness, in spite of our messing up so many times, in spite of everything we've done and the bad things in our past. It's like, okay, if I'm willing to do the work, he will heal me. It says being convinced we're at step three, which is we decide to turn our will and our lives over to God as we understood him. Our will, my obedience, my surrender, and my life. I take the actions I think he would want me to and trust him with the outcome. And then um, they tell us what the requirements are. And Kelsey, are you here? I am. Yep. Can you read them for us in the first person? And I would just say as an exercise, if we're ever in a state of agitation, reading this in the first person with our names put in is very powerful. Kelsey, so instead of I, why don't you say Kelsey? Okay. okay. It's very powerful. And for me, it helps me to see why I'm agitated. Okay, go ahead. Okay. The first requirement is that Kelsey be convinced that my life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, Kelsey is almost. Oh, we can't hear you. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Kelsey, there's something wrong on your computer. Anyone else have a book and willing to be brave enough to do this? I can do it. It's Laurel. Okay, go ahead, Laurel. Okay, the first requirement is that Laurel be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, Laurel is almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives, my motives are good. I try to live by self-propulsion. Each um, Laurel is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in my own way. If Laurel ar arrangement would only stay put, if only people would do as Laurel wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including Laurel, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, Laurel may sometimes be quite virtuous. Laurel may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, Laurel may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But as with most humans, Laurel is more likely to have varied tra traits. What usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. Laurel begins to think life doesn't treat her right. She decides to exert herself more. She becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious as the case may be. Still the place does not, play does not suit her. Admitting she may be somewhat at fault, she is sure that other people are more to blame. She becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is her basic trouble? Is she not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is she not a victim of the delusion that she can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only she manages well? Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things she wants? And do not my actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is she not, even in the best moments, a producer of confusion rather than of harmony? Thank you. Thanks, Laurel. So we see when we read it in the first person, like I, and put in our own names, it's very powerful. And it tells me why I have problems. I'm running on self-will and I'm almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though my motives are good. So let's say um, in early in my marriage, if I tried to get my husband to stop smoking, that's good motives, but he didn't really, you know, like appreciate being told what to do. So it's a collision, even though my motives are good. How did I resolve that, by the way? And one day I just decided can't live in self-will like that. So I said, you want to smoke? I don't like it. But um, if you're going to do it and we had a couple small kids, we need to get like a really big life insurance policy on you to protect me and the children. And I actually asked him, how often is it okay with you for me to remind you that I don't like you smoking? And I think he told me uh, once a month or whatever. It's like, fine. I stuck to it. And he told me he would quit by a certain year. Um, and he did, but, and that was it. I didn't like it, but there was no collision because I eliminated my self-will in that area. And of course, my motives were good. I wanted my kids to have a father around to raise them. I wanted my husband. Doesn't matter. I am a person who cannot live on self-will. 
So, and it tells us what happened when we try to live like that, the show doesn't come off well. We think people don't treat us right. And so we get, we try to exert more and more control, demanding or gracious. Both of those are code words for manipulative, right? To get our will done. And then it says, what is our basic trouble? Am I not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? So if I'm doing something to get a result, even if I'm being nice, I'm a self-seeker. And what do I produce? Confusion rather than harmony. And so what actually is a third step? What would it look like? I gave you one example. So here's another one. Um, normally, we, we want to get things done. And sometimes they're good things. So for example, let's say I had um, raised kids who grow up wanting to go to church every Sunday, right? Another, a good goal. Normally we have goals, but goals are always like, outcome oriented. Now I can have a goal for myself, right? To like become a nicer person. Um, but if I have goals for other people, mm, I'm treading on thin ice. So let's say my goal, get my kids to go to church every Sunday. So what would that mean? It means I would raise them to go, taking them to church, teach them about church. But if that was my goal, and then when they're away at college, as they are now, and are not going to church as at least one of them is not now, I would measure my success as a mom by that. I would feel angry, frustrated, and like a failure. And before I really surrender this, do things like every Sunday, say to the, that child, did you go to church today? Did you go to church today? And either try to manipulate like, oh, well, it would be so nice if you went and came with me like for Christmas or Mother's Day or whatever. Um, and, you know, and then like get ups either be nicer or it's like, you know, think I never did get this far, but I could see someone saying like, well, I'm not going to pay for your college if you don't go, go to church. I'm not going to pay for your college if you don't do fill in the blank. Right. Um, and, but I've surrendered it. So what does that mean? It means I still raise them to go to church, still model it for them. I don't ask them if they go to church and I don't measure my success as a mom based on whether I raised my children well enough to make them desire to go to church. The only way I um, judge myself, I don't like that word judge, but evaluate myself is how closely did I follow God's will? It's my job to raise them a certain way. How they turn out is not my job, is not my business. So we're basically, it's said, out of the results business. So I look for my role. What's my part? I do it as best I can and then leave the results up to God. So Am I unhappy that one of my children doesn't go to church? Yeah. But am I crushed by it? Nope. Not crushed. Um, so it tells us what we're like. It says people like us are self-centered, egocentric. Um, 
like the retired businessman who complains of the nation, the minister who complains about other people's sins, politicians who complain about how the rest of the world behaves. Um, so we're always looking at other people. If only other people, my husband, my kids, my boss, you know, Putin over in Russia would do as I wanted, I would be okay. And they're saying no. And then they tell us selfishness, self-centeredness, that is the root of our troubles. Well, it's interesting. If you think of a tree and the roots, we don't see the roots, they're underground. So our selfishness and self-centeredness isn't always visible, but we see the fruits. And what are the fruits of this illness? Fear, resentments, and harms to others. And that's what we see. But we have to get this up by the roots. And they tell us our troubles are basically of our own making. Now, I'm not talking about anyone who's like the victim of, you know, being raped at gunpoint or a child who's the victim of incest. They say, basically, our troubles are of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. We want our lives to go a certain way. We want the world to go a certain way. And it says, we are extreme examples of self-will run riot though we usually don't think so, right? Built-in denial syndrome. And it says, we can't even get rid of this without, our, without God's help. We can't get, even get rid of our own selfishness. And here's why, because if I'm saying, God, make me unselfish, I'm still treating God like a genie in the magic lamp. God, you come in and change my heart and make me unselfish. No. And they say, we had to have God's help. And this is the how and why of it. We had to quit playing God, right? I stopped telling my husband he can't smoke. I stopped telling my kids once they're a certain age that they have to go to church. And they say, we decided in this drama of life, God is going to be our director. So I look to do what his will is and leave the outcome to him. And it says, he is the principal, we are his agents. So basically an agent is someone who does the will of the principal. But it's beyond that, right? Like God's not just some impersonal agent, you know, where we pray and meditate. And he says, today is your, ta your task is to do A, B, and C. No, he is the father and we are his beloved children. And it says, most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone and the new and triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. And page 63 gives us the step three promises. It says we have a new employer with a capital E, meaning God. Since he's all powerful, he gives us what we need if, it says two conditions. We keep close to him, right? By, um, we remain like tethered to him by our spiritual work, prayer, meditation, spiritual reading, and performing his work well. I do what I think he would have me. That's it. Pray and meditate for knowledge of his will for me, the power to carry it out. And I do what I think he wants as best I can. If we're new, there are certain basic things we all know. We have to stop lying, stop stealing, no cheating on husbands, no cheating on taxes, and do things that ex 
that where we extend ourselves for others, not just, oh, I helped someone else. I made an outreach call from the comfort of my sofa today. I have um, one sponsee every night. She texts me what her service was for the day. And it's things like I got up at five in the morning to drive someone to the airport. You know, it's like it's things that are more than three seconds. And I say she'll recover. Um, so it tells us if we do this, some really cool promises, we become less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. Get that like an interior decorator, a designer, designing everything in the world, my little plans and designs. I stopped caring so much. My husband started um, redoing our bathroom like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. It's not done yet. I could care less. Doesn't matter. Um, more and more, we become interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. We spend time with others, helping others. That's why um, as sponsors, we often tell people you need to make multiple calls a day. So people get involved in each other's lives because we're used to just, you know, me, myself and my TV. Um, and it, then it tells us what happens. New power flows in. Remember in step two, we got a little bit of power. We got a little bit and now we start getting more. Um, we discovered we could face life successfully. We're not worried we're gonna fail at everything. And we become conscious of God's presence and we start to lose our fear of today, tomorrow and the hereafter. So people say like, I'm afraid of going to hell. That starts going away. We lose our fear. And then I'll just close with, um, just kind of a few words on the third step prayer. It says, many of us said to our maker, as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. God, take the raw material of me and build and do with me whatever you want. Relieve me of the bondage of self, right? It's a bondage. Why? So that my life is good. So no, so that I can better do thy will so I can serve you better. Take away my difficulties. Why? So my life is nice and easy and I can watch more TV? Uh-uh. So victory over them. Victory, like, a, like we come through a war, victors may bear a witness to those I would help, right? We become interested in helping people of three things. God's power. He's powerful enough to do it. His love. He loves me enough to do it. And this way of life says, we thought well before doing this, right? Making sure we were ready that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. I love that abandon, like jumping off a cliff, knowing you'll be caught. And we, when we do this, we've basically um, consecrated our lives to God. Just, we said, God, my life is yours. You know, I'm in your hands. Do with me what you will. And I can tell you um, from my own experience and the experience of anyone who's, who's done this, it's like, hang on to your hat because you're about to go for quite a wonderful ride. And with that, I pass.